Amen. All right, let's go Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a second. Um, also, we have some uh, physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of really special things uh, to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. We believe that He uses it to reveal Himself to us and to shape us into who He wants us to be. And so if the Bible is the tool by which He does the most work, then it's advantageous for you for you to be reading it yourself. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we could fix that today by sending you home with a little cheap paperback Bible. It's that easy. All right? Take it home, start reading it, and I'll call it a win. All right, um, Matthew chapter 8. <coughs> I'm sorry, that's going to happen often this morning. Um, here's the deal. Uh, we kicked off a series several weeks back uh, that's going to take us all the way through Easter uh, that we're calling the Already But Not Yet Kingdom. The concept is really, really simple. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus is, we're told, going around uh, throughout the region of Galilee, and he's teaching in the synagogues, and he's working miracles, and he's, quote, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so what does that mean? Well, Jesus, the guy who doesn't ever leave us hanging, right, he explains what that means. Right? Immediately after Matthew makes that statement, Matthew also tells us in chapter 5 that Jesus sits down on a mountainside and begins to teach this giant crowd of people that are all pulling at Jesus for something. All right? And so he teaches this long section of teaching, the longest section of teaching that we have recorded from Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, we know it better as the Sermon on the Mount. All right? And the Sermon on the Mount has some of the most important stuff that Jesus ever said. The most famous stuff that Jesus ever said is recorded for us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's this really special thing that, that has become special for all kinds of people. A lot of commentators refer to it as the King's Manifesto, right? meaning that if you want to get into the mind and motives of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the places you need to look, or at least a main place that you need to look. All right? And so uh, we walked through that kind of systematically, just kind of kicked off all the way through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But last week, we rewrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. So what gives? Like, what are we going to do now? Like, that's over. Here's what I want to do. I want to spend the next four weeks looking at other things that Matthew has written through the same framework of the already but not yet kingdom. I want to see how King Jesus, the upside down king, is going to live and operate inside this kingdom he's initiating. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. That's what we're doing. So it's like the plan from here through Easter. Welcome to the ride. No, it's, I, I think it'll be very beneficial for us. So we're going to look at something this week, we're going to look at something next week, and as we begin to walk through Palm Sunday and Easter, we're going to look at it within this framework that Matthew is building, of, building for us of the already but not yet kingdom. Here's, here's something about Matthew, though, that you need to, to lock down as, as you're reading it. Um, Matthew is writing his gospel account, I would call categorically more than chronologically. So what does that mean? Chronologically means in historical order. Categorically means he's grouping it by type, right? So does that mean that the order of events is not important to Matthew? Not a bit. It is important. It's just less important. There's several times in Matthew's gospel account where he says, and then Jesus did this, or Jesus immediately left there and did that. So the order of events is important to Matthew, but more than anything else, he's grouping his stories for a purpose. And that purpose is to show that Jesus is exactly who the Jewish Old Testament scriptures promised the Messiah would be. So how does that apply 
to what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 8. Well, we're going to look at six stories this morning, all six stories in Matthew chapter 8, that Matthew sandwiches together, but none of them are happening in chronological order. He's bouncing all over the timeline, and he's doing it for a point. He decides to tell these stories back to back to back for the purpose of teaching a larger point. So if you're the puzzle-solving type, see if you can guess what that point is before we get to the finish line today. You ready to do it? Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 1. When he, that's Jesus, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, (coughs) sorry guys, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Okay, so Jesus picks up uh, basically at the same place that he did at the end of chapter 4. Everybody's pulling on him, right? Everybody wants a little piece of Jesus. Everybody wants him to perform a miracle. Everybody wants to, to see him teach with authority. All right, so for all the weight and gravitas that the Sermon on the Mount carries on an eternal scale, it's really nothing more than like this parenthetical timeout to the needs of the day, right? Everybody's yanking on Jesus. And immediately, right out of the gate, we're told by Matthew that there's a leper that approaches Jesus and wants to be cleansed. They want to be healed for this, for that, and this time it's a leper. There's all kinds of debate over whether or not the leprosy that's commonly referred to in the Bible is the same thing that we today call Hansen's disease. I'm of the inclination that it is. There's, there's really smart people who love Jesus and love the Bible who disagree with me vehemently on that. I'm of the opinion that it absolutely is the same thing. And if it is the same thing, that means that the leprosy that we're talking about is really, really bad. Um, what we've learned over time is that what it actually does is attack the nerve endings at the extremities of the body. So the nerve endings die and you can't feel anything. And so what a leper ends up doing is that they end up having a series, a long string of minor cuts and scrapes and burns that never heal. Because the body doesn't know that something's actually wrong. It's so, much, it's so bad that the brain begins to dissociate parts of the body from itself. And so we actually have reports of lepers reaching actively into live coals into the fire to grab something out because their brain doesn't even bother to tell them that that's a bad idea. Can you imagine how bad this gets? And so it's an endless string of, of hurting yourself, of harming yourself, and not even noticing that there's a problem. The brain just kind of, yeah, whatever. It's not my problem, it's somebody else's problem. So if people with leprosy essentially waste away with an endless string of minor cuts and scrapes and bruises, it's also pretty contagious. It's caused by a bacterium, so it can travel through the air when someone coughs. So I promise you, I don't have it as I cough on you today. Excuse me for a second. (laughs) It can travel through the air as someone coughs. Or you can get it by contacting an open wound. 
Do you see why this was a scary thing for the ancient world? So just step out of the Bible for a second. This is a dissociate yourself and remove them from your midst for every ancient culture. So when you start talking about the Bible, when you start talking about God's people, well, they had rules about it too, right? This is why lepers were cast out of communities all over the place. But in Levitical law, the, there was a very specific command regarding someone who was even suspected of having leprosy. You needed to deal with it, and you needed to deal with it immediately, or else it was going to get bad everywhere. Lepers under the Levitical law were unclean. It means they couldn't enter the temple. Also, couldn't, it means that they couldn't live in proximity with the rest of the covenant community. The Talmud, which is the rabbinical uh, commentary on the law, uh, it, it tried to explain and, and define the law for God's people. It said that a leper couldn't come within 1,500 feet of another person on a windy day. You want to add up 1,500 feet in your head real quick? It's a big gap. So what's the point of walking through all this? Well, it tells us that an unclean and contagious leper Willingly approaching a rabbi on a busy day is a bad idea. Especially if that rabbi is performing the miracle of healing other folks. Under most circumstances, this leper is about to get stoned in the Old Testament sense. How dare you approach this man? What is wrong with you? Why would you prevent him from doing these things? But there's something otherworldly about this rabbi, isn't there? And this leper seems to get the picture that this rabbi is very different. And so Matthew tells us that he presses in. Look at verse 2 again. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Uh, the phrase knelt down there is not the best translation of the Greek. The Greek actually carries the idea of prostration. So this is way bigger than just begging. There's, there's humility here, and there's worship happening in this moment. There's also extreme faith because he says, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, Jesus, I know you can. I I know you can, and you know I want to. The only question that remains is, do you want to? And what does Matthew say that Jesus' response is? He says, I will be clean. And then, this is huge, church, he reaches out and what? Touches him. Hey guys, Jesus touched a contagious leper. Jesus touched a spiritually unclean leper. And he did it on purpose, it looks like. And there's a very, very simple but profound question that needs to be asked this morning concerning that. Why? Does Jesus have to touch the leper in order to heal him? Let me rephrase that in case you didn't get the picture. Is Jesus' ability to heal this guy limited to the need to touch him in order to be effective? Not for a second. So why does Jesus touch him here? 
because this guy actually needed to be healed on several different levels. In fact, the way I see it, Jesus heals this guy on four different levels all at the same time. First, Jesus heals this guy physically. That's the one that's easy to wrap our heads around. Look at verse 3 again. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. Like, I don't know what that turnaround looks like. It's probably kind of freaky, but I'm sure it's amazing. But it says immediately. His leprosy was cleansed. And I, listen, I, even if you don't have a, a big church background, you probably don't struggle with that. You've heard stories about Jesus. Sure, Jesus can do that kind of stuff. Healed him immediately. Awesome. I think Jesus also heals this guy emotionally. How long do you think it's been since this guy's had human contact? Like, like he lives separated from the ones he loves. He lives separated from the broader community. I mean, it's literally illegal for him to pursue contact with someone who is clean. And let's say for a second that he ignored all that. He just forgot about it. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He doesn't care what it affects. He just chases after what he wants. Let's say he just ignores all that. We're talking about a disease that literally takes away the feeling from his extremities, from his hands and his feet and his face. How long, like, he can't tell the difference between human contact and rubbing up against a rock. But the touch that immediately healed him, you think he immediately felt that? Oh, you bet he did. How do you think that touch from Jesus felt to him? How do you think he, how desperately he missed that? But there's even more layers to this. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. But, 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 why wouldn't Jesus let this guy celebrate? Why would Jesus tell that guy to calm down and go see a priest? I mean, doesn't Jesus deserve praise in this moment? Because Leviticus 13 and 14 make it explicitly clear what's supposed to happen when someone who has had leprosy but is now healed is supposed to do in order to be reinstated back into the covenant community. Leviticus 13 and 14 make it very, very clear that they are to go to the priest They are to be observed, they are to make an offering, and then they will be fully, fully restored. Not only does Jesus heal this guy physically and heal this guy emotionally, but Jesus also heals this guy socially. He says, no, 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 don't celebrate yet. Go to the priest. You need to go to the priest, man. Go to the priest. Make your offering. Don't celebrate here. There's more to do. Physically, emotionally, and socially. And then finally, Jesus heals this guy spiritually. Hey guys, there's a really, really simple pattern in the Old Testament. Let me spell it out for you. When spiritually clean things come into contact with spiritually unclean things, the spiritually clean things become unclean. But that's not what happens here, is it? What happened here? Spiritually clean, Jesus touches the unclean leper. The unclean is made clean again. Guys, this story from Matthew, he teaches us that Jesus has complete authority. Not not partial authority, not 
not holding stake authority, complete and utter authority over not only terrible sickness and disease, but even our ability to approach God. But it's also the only, only the first story we're going to look at today. Look at the next one. Look at verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will, or I will come and heal him. Excuse me, verse 8. And, uh, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. <coughs> Excuse me. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Okay, so now we've got a Roman centurion introduced into the picture. <clears throat> the Jews in Jesus' day were an occupied people. So how do you occupy a region as vast as the Roman Empire? You station Roman army all over the place. All right? And so the centurion would have been the guy in charge of a hundred-man crew. That's why you get the word centurion there, right? right? He would have been the guy in charge of a hundred-man unit in your hometown to make sure that the peace is maintained, to make sure that Rome's foot is held on everybody else's back. And so if you're a Jew living in Capernaum, how are you feeling about the guy in charge of the Roman army in your hometown? You don't like that guy. Not a bit. But in Luke's account of this very same story, we're told that the centurion doesn't come himself, that he sends messengers. And those messengers are Jewish elders. And those Jewish elders approach Jesus and they really want Jesus to heal this guy because, well, this centurion, he's different. He gave us money to build the synagogue. Just let you chew on that for a second. The Jewish elders, they don't, they don't mind this centurion so much. They want Jesus to help him. The Jewish elders, they don't like Jesus and they shouldn't like the centurion, but the centurion gave them money, so Jesus, heal this guy, please. Is that how the world works? Unfortunately, that's how the world works. The word comes back that Jesus is willing to go. He starts making his way to the centurion's house. And word gets back to the centurion that Jesus is on his way. And he stops him and says, no, 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 no. You don't have to come all this way. Listen, I, I, I'm an officer. I, I know how authority works. When I speak, things get done. And the Bible says that Jesus is blown away by this. He's, he marvels at his faith. He says, Men, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jewish theology during this time period held to a, an end times feast. 
that was specifically for the Jews. Kind of the way that Christians think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a lot of differences, so they're not the same thing at all. Uh, but they, they have a lot of similarities, and so if you want to kind of see them that way, that works. All right. uh, but Jews held to an end times feast around the table of Abraham. And everybody who was invited were ethnically Jewish. And all the Gentiles, they go to hell. And, and Jesus just said, that a bunch of Gentiles are going to be hanging out at this table and a bunch of Jewish people aren't going to make the cut. How do you think Jesus' very, very Jewish audience felt about that little remark? Jesus is being intentionally inflammatory, isn't he? Does Jesus ever do that? Is Jesus allowed to do that? I didn't think Jesus did that. No, Jesus totally does that. This is many... Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus simply says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the centurion's servant is healed. Which means that Jesus does not in any way, shape, or form have to be in the same location as the person he's trying to heal. I think Matthew gives us this this story to teach us that Jesus, when he wills something to be done, when he intends for something to be done, guys, it gets done. Despite the distance, despite the complication, despite the enemy force working against it, doesn't matter. When Jesus says jump, creation says how high. That's the point. But it's only the second story that we're going to read today. Look at verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law, that's Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. All right, so this story is in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. All right, um, it's pretty straightforward. Peter's mother-in-law is, has a fever. Luke's uh, account of this story tells us that she has a high fever, which means serious. All right, in the first century world, ain't nobody popping a Tylenol. Ain't nobody running down to the urgent care to make sure that you get checked out. Like, in in this world, in the culture that they're living in, high fever might just mean deathbed. They're riding it out, hoping for the best. Jesus shows up, says, I got this, heals her instantly. Sounds real similar to a lot of the stories we know about Jesus, right? Here's what's interesting about this story to me. We have no idea what her name is. No clue. Just Peter's mother-in-law. She pops up. She starts serving Jesus and everybody else like it's nothing. On with the rest of the day. And then just as quickly, it tells us that word spreads fast in this little town. Everybody starts chasing after Jesus again. Jesus, can you fix this? Jesus, can you heal my? Jesus, can you help my? And this time, we see Jesus heal every single person they bring to him. 
long line of people. Again, not a name in the bunch. There's other times where Jesus makes it really, really clear that that he hasn't come for the purpose of healing. He's come for the purpose of going to the cross. Like there's other times where long lines of people are, are waiting on Jesus to do this or waiting on Jesus to do that and he has to pull away and say, no, no, that's not why I came. And he gets out of there and goes off somewhere else. But here, here Matthew says, no, 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 he healed every one of them. Every single nameless one of them. Jesus takes the time to meet with every single person that came to him that night. I think Matthew gives us this story because it shows us that Jesus has a deep, deep concern for those that the world usually overlooks. He's patient towards them. He looks to serve them. But it's only the third story that we're going to look at today. Look at verse 18. I'm going to cough again this time. I'm going to try to warn you when it happens. Verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the the disciples said to him, that's not the 12 disciples, that's just one of the crowd of people. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. All right, so once again, we have a giant crowd of people following Jesus around, pulling on him every which way. It's almost like there's a theme in what Matthew's saying here. All right, and then some doofus in the crowd goes, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, you may think it's a little harsh to call him that, but I have a reason. Matthew gives us a reason. He says that this man is a scribe. So what's a scribe? A scribe is literally an expert in the Jewish law. His job was to write God's word over and over and over and over and over again, all day, every day. His job was to know the law better than anybody else in his Israel. His job was to know the Old Testament backwards and forwards and inside out. And so if anybody had a question, they came to him. If anybody wanted to know what this said, they came to him. Anybody in this crowd ought to know who the Messiah was supposed to be. It's this guy. This guy. This this is a man who had Isaiah memorized. The same Isaiah which tells us that the suffering servant would have to suffer and die in order to save God's people. He's the guy that's supposed to know that the Messiah was going to have to come a very very specific way, and yet still he missed it. All of Israel should have known who Jesus was the second he stepped on the scene, but this guy especially. And so you can probably imagine this little scenario play out as it happens. Moron speaks up, Jesus stops, spins around and goes, Really? You're going to follow me wherever I go? You know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you sure about that, chief? Are you really ready to follow me wherever I go, Mr. Expert in the law? 
sure you feel it up to that? You follow me, and I mean seriously follow me. It's going to cost you. You may be destitute, you may be homeless, persecution will come. Following me is not for the faint of heart. You sure you're ready to follow me? Because my pathway, Mr. Scribe, leads directly to the cross. Scriptures that you have memorized and that you have written down for other people over and over and over again tell you that I have come for the express purpose of suffering and dying on behalf of other people's sin. You sure you're ready to ride the big boy ride? Luke's account tells us that Jesus spins around to someone else in the crowd and asks him if he's willing to follow him wherever he goes. And that guy's like, sure, just let me go bury my dad first. So in this culture, what's likely going on here is that his father's not actually dead. His father's probably alive and actually probably doing very, very well. Right? Uh, what's going on in this culture is that there's an inheritance in play. And so he's got to be a good little Jewish boy for a while and work in his father's field and live in his daddy's house and, and play the good little Jewish boy role until his father does die. So that way when everything gets time to be settled, there's not going to be any kinks in the inheritance. And then once he's set financially, and once he's got all his affairs in order, then he's going to have the time and the freedom to go follow Jesus. He's not standing around waiting for a funeral at 3 o'clock. He's telling Jesus that he's waiting on the next stage of his life before he can get serious about following him. I like you, Jesus, but I really need to focus on my future right now. It's a story that gets repeated by young adults every single year. We'll catch up later. I need to focus on me. I'm just having fun. I'm just getting some things in order. Then I'll be, I like you, but you know, just give me some time. So if you've ever said that to yourself, answer this question. What does Jesus tell him in verse 22? He says, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, let those who are perishing outside of my kingdom worry about the decaying stuff that's outside of my kingdom. Guys, the cost of following Jesus is not cheap. Not even a little bit. He will not share your allegiance with another. The king of the already but not yet kingdom will not accept half-hearted commitments from his citizens. And I know that that feels out of touch with the culture that we've created of ourselves because we, all of us, myself included, want to reserve the right to hold out for a better option, don't we? I mean, isn't that what we're all kind of looking for and hoping for? I mean, that's the New England way, guys. As a transplant, it drives me crazy. I do it too. We all want to hold out for a better option, a better offer. But a serious question needs to be asked. Do you really think a better one's on the table somewhere? Do you think a better one could exist than what King Jesus provides? Don't answer that yet. Let's let Matthew do it for us. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> and when he got into the boat, when Jesus got in the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, I shouldn't have shouted like that, it's going to make me cough. <coughs> 
Sorry. All right. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? All right, so here's another story plucked out of somewhere else in the timeline, but put here for Matthew's, Matthew's purposes. All right, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a massive storm comes out of nowhere. Right? And all kinds of ink has been spilled over whether or not these storms are common or not so common. Right? The geography kind of plays into this. And they're like, well, because of the mountains around the sea, this, this wind, these windstorms happen on a frequent occasion. Here's what you need to know. Men who have spent their entire lives on this lake. Fishermen who grew up in boats on this lake and have made their careers and livings in boats on this lake are freaking out right now thinking they're about to die. In this storm. Whether it's common or not, they're scared. And where's Jesus? Dude's asleep. So they wake him up, basically accusing him of not caring. And what does Jesus do? Matthew tells us that he rebukes them for not having enough faith, and then he turns around and rebukes the wind and the waves. He got onto the weather like it was some little disobedient child. Stop that, you quiet now. Go back to bed. I got a three-year-old right now. I talk to him the same way. Stop that. What are you thinking? Matthew tells us that the disciples marveled at Jesus. Mark's account of the story. Oh, no, he goes into a little more detail. He says that they're terrified of him. And wouldn't you be? You find yourself stuck in a little boat with a guy who told the wind to stop, and it did? How do you process that? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? I can't get far enough away from him in the boat. The story shows us that Jesus has complete, complete and utter authority. Not only uh, authority over every natural part of creation. There's nothing outside of his control. Like like man was given dominion over the earth. God tasked us with building, with taming, and with bringing order. But there ain't nobody in here calling a storm to heal. Jesus, though, is different. But Matthew, he just keeps writing. Verse 28. And when he came to the other side... To the country of the Gadarenes, some of your translations may say Gerasenes, it's the same place. Uh, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs." And he said to them, <coughs> excuse me, and he said to them, go. You, uh, so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Because how does that not make the story? Verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their Region. All right, so the story goes that these men with demons scare everybody else and prevent anyone from coming near the cave. Because, and that makes sense, right? Because nobody wants to hang out by the demon dudes down by the sea cave. Like, 
Like, you're not going to go mess with those guys. You just keep your distance. But then Jesus shows up, and they walk straight up to Jesus, and they start asking if he's there to torment them before the appointed time. So hear me. No matter what your church background is, high, low, somewhere in between, here's what you need to hear here. There's no duality in this. Not a lick. There's no good versus evil, no light versus darkness, no who's going to win. No, this is 100%. Please don't hurt us, Mr. Jesus. May we please have your permission to go to the pigs instead. And with a single word, Jesus shows his authority. Go. Get. That's the southern way of putting it. Get. Jesus isn't southern, so he uses go. You just got to contextualize sometimes, that's all. The Bible tells us that they go into a herd of pigs and immediately run off a cliff into the water and drown. And if you're a Jewish reader of Matthew's gospel account, you probably think a little higher of Jesus right now. Because good for him, he got rid of those pigs. Dirty things. But the Gadarenes were pretty weirded out by the whole deal. And then think about it. Like, like wouldn't you be? If your view of God is somewhat less than benevolent right now, because they don't have the Jewish scriptures to back this up. They're a Gentile community. There's the reason why the pigs are there, right? They don't have the scriptures. And so if their view of God is less than benevolent, you're a little nervous right now that Jesus is hanging out in your town. So they ask him to leave. But the point is crystal clear. Jesus has complete over authority over the demonic and any other spiritual force in play. It's a waste of breath to call it a contest. It's over before it started. So there you have it. Six stories all sandwiched together in Matthew chapter 8. Woo! What do we do with it? Well, let's zoom out a little bit. You've got the story about Jesus healing a leper. And we get to see Jesus' authority over sickness and disease, right? You've got the story about a respected centurion servant. And we get to see Jesus' authority over time and place. And you've got the story of Jesus healing a sick mother-in-law and a giant crowd of other nameless people. And we get to see Jesus' concern for those that the world overlooks. And then you've got a story about Jesus calming the storm. And we get to see Jesus' authority over every natural thing in the world. And you've got a story of the Gentile demoniac. And we get to see Jesus' authority over every single spiritual thing in this world. And then you've got this tiny little story out of chronological order about the cost of following Jesus just thrown right in the middle of it. Why? Why would Matthew frame this little story that way? Because when you take a step back and you begin to actually realize exactly who Jesus is, you are going to quickly get the picture that Despite tribulation and distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, to quote Romans 8. That despite any of those things, you will get the, quickly get the picture that none of those things can overshadow the beauty and the power and the goodness and the pleasure and the glory of King Jesus. Not even a little bit. You can deal with homelessness when you correctly see Jesus as better. 
And you can deal with persecution when you correctly see Jesus as better. And you can deal with heartbreak. And you can deal with famine. And you can deal with whatever you want to fill in the blank when you see Jesus correctly as better. And it's here that we can come back to that question that we asked earlier. Because the honest truth is that dragging your feet, waiting to see if a better offer is going to pop up, really only proves that you have no idea what Jesus is actually offering. Not a clue. Following Jesus is costly. and Don't let ever let anybody tell you otherwise. They're lying to you. It's, it's costly at a high level. Following Jesus will likely mean hurts and heartbreaks in this world. Jesus has promised nothing less than that. Oh, but church, look who you're putting your hope in. The Jesus that promises these temporary hardships is the same King Jesus that takes away leprosy with an intentional and gentle touch. And the same King Jesus that doesn't even have to be in the same room as the work he's wanting to do because when he speaks, things get done. He's the same King Jesus that never, ever, ever overlooks the ones that the world always overlooks. And he's the same King Jesus that can sleep in the middle of a storm that scares hardened sailors to death because to him it's nothing but a part of creation that needs to be shown who the boss is. And he's the exact same King Jesus that looks to the spiritual powers of this world in the eye and tells them that they, what they are and are not allowed to do. The great cost of following Jesus only appears costly if you only focus on things that are outside of his kingdom. They're costly, but only if you focus on things outside of his kingdom. But you know, Jesus just got done preaching a sermon against that like one chapter ago, but whatever. Are there tribulations? Yep. Are there distresses and perils? Absolutely. Are there persecutions? Is there nakedness? Is there famine and sword sometimes? Yep. But the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. According to Paul out of the same Romans chapter 8. When you see Jesus correctly, the cost of following him is actually not so costly after all. I think that's why Matthew frames that story that way. The cost of following Jesus is great, but look at all these other things Jesus does. I think you'll be okay. So the obvious next question for us this morning is simple. Are you following Jesus? Like really, truly, yes, by all means, weigh what he requires of you. Do not take lightly the call to take up your cross and follow him. Do not take lightly what it means to truly call him Lord. Those are bold things to declare. Those are bold things to do. But once you have weighed those things, add some other things to your scale. Add his goodness, add his nearness, add his, add his sovereign rule over all creation, and then add his unmatchless love for you and see where your scale lands. It'll look pretty good. The offer of Jesus to know him and be known by him is something that this world will never fully wrap its head around. The king of a far better kingdom wants you. And so how should we respond to God's word this morning? 
If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. And I think you do that by being intentional to remember the Jesus that has saved you. Like, focus on him this morning. He is neither overwhelmed by the work, nor is he making it up as he goes. The Jesus who purchased you for himself and has promised to be with you forever has never once been in and over his head. Not a day, not a second. He is good, and there will never come a day when he meets an enemy that is a challenge to him or burdens him. So whatever your struggles today might be, your Jesus is greater still. I think the second step of response is to take this message of Jesus to those who don't know it yet. Right? That's our one job. Who is God putting in your pathway this week that needs to hear about the king who bears all authority? Who needs to hear about the king who makes himself near to those who need him? And can handle every burden. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by repenting of sin and calling on Jesus as Lord. The scribe that should have known better, yeah, the doofus, if he was reading his Bible well, if he was reading his Bible correctly, well, he would have known that the Messiah needed to come and die, and that's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly why he came. That's exactly what he accomplished. Jesus went to the cross for the purpose of paying the debt that's owed for my sin and yours. So now everyone who places their faith in Jesus and his finished work on their behalf are reconciled to him forever. We want to give you a chance to respond to him today too. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front. I'll be down here if you want somebody to walk you through what that step looks like. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Matthew 8. Thank you for being a God who is both sovereign over all And very clear about what it means to follow you. For being a God who has authority over sickness and disease and nature and spiritual. But also waits patiently until the end of the line to heal the last nameless needy sinner. You are big and you are good. You are powerful and you are gentle. You could have healed the leper with a thought and walked on to carry about the rest of your day, but no, you you knew he needed more than that. You're intentional enough to touch when you don't have to. And you're big enough to show your power even if you could have do it in a little simpler. God, for those in here who know you, would you ground us this morning in your good and great love for us? Would we walk away forever changed by who you are? And for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to people today? Would you open eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know you today?
You are the good king. Save us. In your name we pray.